Today's Bible reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. People walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ and friends. Glad that we're all here together around the word of the Lord and in his presence. Let's just pray first. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We live in a dark world, a really dark world. Things are always going wrong, have you noticed? The 20th century, with its two world wars, those terrible wars, so devastating, was terrible enough. The 21st century actually looks less hopeful for a variety of reasons. Jesus said, you hear of wars and revolutions. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events. Jesus was a great prophet. In fact, the greatest prophet. And that's what he said. And what about you, your personal life? Is it all a rosy path ahead, a glowing, or are, are there troubles and concerns? Is it all light? and no darkness, I would think that all of us have certain concerns and worries personally. Do you experience deterioration of energy, of mobility, cognition, of function? Mortality is inescapable for all of us. Yes, the world is dark and all the people of the world are in darkness, deep darkness. 
And the world was like that when Isaiah prophesied 2,700 years ago. And this morning we've read Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to, 6, or 1 to 7. And I'm going to go through that carefully this morning and unpack that with us all together. Now at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 8, the last two verses in that chapter, the prophet had described a certain people. Listen to this. He said they are distressed and hungry. They are famished. They become enraged and they curse their king and their God. They see distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they're thrust into outer darkness. It's a dark picture, I think you'll agree. Terrible, isn't it? Well, this actually is God's view of the people of the world. But there's a particular place and a particular people that the prophet Isaiah has in mind in leading into this passage today. And it might surprise us that the, the place he has in mind is Galilee, the region around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus grew up 2,000 years ago. In that awful darkness, there's a promise, a wonderful promise of the dawning of a great light. And we read about this in um, Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. I wonder whether you just put up the um, quote on the board. I'm going to go through it verse by verse, that, that section, and I'd like people to be able to see it. Let me quote. Isaiah writes, Nevertheless, despite all that dreadful darkness, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in, in distress. In the past, he, God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Isn't that wonderful? Of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This shining light, surely a figure of speech, has a wonderful impact that Isaiah brings out here. It brings deep joy as people are released from their predicament. And their joy is mentioned four times in the next verse, in verse 3. Let me just pick that out for you. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at a harvest. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder four times. And then we get to see why they're so joyful. They've experienced release. Not just from the darkness. They've been cruelly oppressed for who knows how long. And they've had no way out, but now they're free. We get that in the next verse, verse 4. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And um, furthermore, the prophet shows uh, that the um, re release is decisive and irreversible. It's symbolised by that yoke that was across their shoulders, by that being shattered. It's actually shattered, we just heard that. And then it goes on in the next verse, verse 5, he talks about the burning of all the weapons of the warriors and even the clothing of the warriors. It's all fuel for the fire. Verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning 
will be fuel for the fire. Exactly what the prophet means um, by all this is left unexplained in this particular passage. Who is this enemy? Uh, what does the darkness consist of? How does he oppress these people? And how is this victory that we've read about achieved? We know from elsewhere on Isaiah and the rest of the Bible that it's actually sin and guilt which separate us all from God above and enslave the entire human race, oppressing us with sickness, mortality and death. But God, through his great light, has freed us and will free us. The prophet reveals more. He tells how God will do this. The very next word is for, and that links the passage. It introduces that famous and ancient Christian message, verse 6, let me quote. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Mighty Counselor. Sorry, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The promise to victory, then, is dependent on a single individual. Just this one. And this one is a child. A son. We notice how the present tense is used here. It's as though uh, it says he is born, um, he is given. Uh, it's as though it's happening right before the prophet's eyes. Though Isaiah actually lived 700 years before Jesus was born. But from this point on in that uh, prophecy, it's in the future tense, you'll notice. Now why does the prophet mention his birth? It's a hint that there's something very unusual about this one's birth. Isaiah wrote earlier, um, in an earlier prophecy, in chapter 7, verse 14, he wrote, the Lord himself will give you a sign, he said. He's speaking to the king of the time. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which word means God with us. Pretty unusual, isn't it? Very unusual. Unique, in fact. The promised victory... Uh, sorry, I read that. Um, sorry. Uh, wow. The, this one is going to be called Emmanuel, and it's, the child is born to a virgin. Why does this prophet say that this one is born to us and is given to us? That's not the normal way you'd describe a birth, uh, unless it was your actual own child that was born. You, you could say then, but not generally. You wouldn't describe any other birth that way, would you? Once again, there's a hint here in these prophecies that this birth is significant beyond any other birth in human history. This child was not just given to Mary, wonderful as that was, nor to, or to Joseph, but this child is given to us all and for us all. Something absolutely unique. And then we read that this, in that same verse, that he will govern. He himself will be the government of what, we might ask. What's he the government of? Is it Galilee that was mentioned at the beginning of the section? Is it the two tribes, the region of those tribes that were mentioned as well, Zebulun and Naphtali? Is it of Israel as a whole to whom the prophet is uh, speaking? Well, in the next verse, um, 
of chapter 9 there, we, uh, learn, uh, we learn that the government will be great beyond any measure. It will be ab- absolutely great and it will be characterised by peace, justice and righteousness. And it will never end. It's eternal. Staggering, isn't it? Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will increase till it covers everything. There will be no end. And the peace is really deep peace. And it's endless. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, the mention of uh, David's throne and his kingdom. Well, David, uh, you probably know, was the greatest king of ancient Israel about 3,000 years ago. He ruled from Jerusalem during their golden era. So it's this kingdom that's primarily in view here in the prophet's words. But there's much more than that. From other parts of Isaiah and the whole of the Bible, we learn that this one will govern the entire world. He will rule over everyone and everything. And that is coming. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, we read another prophecy. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. A later prophet, Daniel, uh, wrote these words. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And then in an earlier verse there, it says it filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of which the prophet is speaking, far more than the territory of Israel. It's the whole world. In the New Testament, we learn this from Paul's writing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now let's return to the words that we skipped over in verse 6 there, those four titles. There are four superb titles that the prophet gives for this unique one to come, and here they are in order. First of all, we have wonderful counsellor. Who doesn't need a really good counsellor? But who can find one? And even when you do, that person is still limited because they're just a human being like us. This one, however, he said, recorded in John chapter 6, verse 63, the words I have spoken... They are spirit and they are life. That's what Jesus has for us. And again in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said these wonderful words, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, here's that word yoke again, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, 
let's um, consider the next title. What is it? It's, uh, the, there were four of them. The next one is um, uh, Mighty God. And that's astounding, isn't it? How can this one, this child, this baby, this one be Mighty God? The Jews were very protective about the word God. No one was God but God alone. Nothing could be called God except God himself. It's not their idea. They had all that from God himself. Yet this child, this son, is God himself. Mighty God. There's mystery here, progressively revealed to us as we read through the record in the Bible. And we recall that other prophetic title that I've already referred to in chapter 7, verse 14, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is mighty God. Okay, let's look at the next one. Everlasting Father. Now this too is astounding. How can a child be the father? How can the son be called father? Well, he's so intimately related to Father God, so at one with him that he is titled Father. Jesus said, again recorded in John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. And in a similar context in John 14, verses 9 and 11, he said, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And how can this one born at a point in history 2,000 years ago, how can this one be everlasting? Everlasting Father is his title. There are things here that are finally beyond us, beyond our human comprehension. Our best response is to worship and adore him. That's what we do. The final uh, title is Prince of Peace. As I had said on the one hand, he said two things about peace. And back in uh, chapter 57 and verse 21, oh sorry, it's later on in Isaiah, but he, it's in Isaiah 57, 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And in contrast with that, just a verse earlier, peace, peace to those near and far, says the Lord, and I will heal them. God does have peace for us and healing. And it's uh, through this one, the Prince of Peace. Once again, um, this peace comes just through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And it was Jesus who said in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That's the Prince of Peace. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, this is what Christmas is really all about. The coming into the world of this one, this promised one, in whom all God's promises find their focus and in whom is all our hope. And how is it all to happen? How can this be? The prophet Isaiah tells us in the final line of verse 7, the section that we read this morning, 
Here it is, he says. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, many people balk at the word zeal. We think of someone zealous as fanatic, single-minded, fierce. Well, here in this text, we learn that God is zealous. And uh, God is infinite. He's, we're puny and he's infinite. If he's zealous, wow, God is zealous. Incidentally, Jesus, the Son of God, is zealous too. God is zealous about the subject of this prophecy that he gave through Isaiah. Namely, he's zealous about Jesus and his saving work and his kingdom. God has created the universe. Who can effectively resist God? We have considered what we've considered this morning is not something incidental or peripheral in God's plan. No. It's the very center of his plan and his zeal is directed towards that. It's the, the center of his attention, it's his focus. And he will accomplish this. How blessed are we that God has given us his son, his dear son, the promised one, and that through him he will accomplish all his wonderful purpose in love and that we are embraced, every one of us, we are embraced in his love forever. Thank you. Let's just pray. Thank you, our dear Heavenly Father, that you've had mercy on us your creatures who have in so many ways dishonoured you, every one of us. Thank you that you haven't abandoned us as we deserve, left us in our misery, but that you've wonderfully provided for us. And you've done this through your dear Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Please help us to see, with the help of your Holy Spirit, what you have done and what you yet will do through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jeff.